0: So these people had, uh, were visiting, they were, they'd were moved in the neighborhood, they had visited that church, They then they tried ours and they thought, I'm so surprised that you have women pastors, but you actually take the Bible seriously. And I realized, wow, that hurts to be on the receiving end of that, that because I disagree about something biblically, it must mean that I don't care about Scripture. The idea that someone could study Scripture, love Scripture, and come to a different conclusion was never presented to that congregation, you know? And, and I think because I was on the receiving end of that, and I have been since on other issues, what it did for me is say, I never want to be the perpetrator of that division. I don't want to be in the same boat. So I'm not going to fight fire with fire. I want to make sure that if people ever leave the Meeting House, go visit another church, that they've already been prepared, that people who radically disagree with us are still our brothers and sisters who we love dearly and we can learn from them.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Undiscussed. My name is Caroline.
2: And I'm Eric.
1: And this is a show that we talk about things that Christians should talk about, but often don't. And today we're joined by a really wonderful guest, Bruxy KV.
0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me be a part of this. Yeah,
2: I'm very excited. I've known uh, Bruxy very minorly for about 20 years. I want to say you just
1: want to grab some influence
2: i i'm sorry i just (laughs) (laughs) create a power dynamic here or something i don't know and uh followed along as a kind of a silent observer of the meeting house where he is a pastor and uh really excited to have you here on the show i love your uh, big bag of questions or bruxy's bag of questions as well and uh yeah welcome bruxy
1: So why don't we just jump in and how about you tell us who are you? Why should people care about (laughs) Brexit? Other
2: than because he's wonderful. Yeah.
0: People should care because I am a human being made in the image of God and I'm infinitely valuable to him. So you should care about me as I care about you as we care about everybody. Beyond that. What
1: a wonderful answer.
0: Yeah. Well, beyond that, I am the pastor of a church called the Meeting House, which is a bit of a weird bird. The Meeting House, first of all, is an Anabaptist congregation and Anabaptists as in like Mennonite and Amish. We grew out of what's called the Radical Reformation on the heels of the Protestant Reformation, and um, and so this we were like the students of the Protestants. We come one generation later, who as the Protestants helped the church kind of fall in love with the Scriptures again. Anabaptists where there were their students, reading the Scriptures and saying, "Well, this is helping us fall in love with Jesus." And then they kind of even protested the Protestants to say, "We need to remember to keep Jesus in the center of the Bible." And because of that, uh, it led to some ways they distinguished themselves from both Protestants and Catholics. And one is that they believed faith should be a personal choice, and so Uh, They came up with this crazy idea of believers baptism as opposed to infant baptism, which the Protestant reformers were still practicing. And then this other crazy idea of the separation of church and state, which which until that time seemed like an odd thing. You had even within Protestant uh, societies, the fusion of church and state. So if you were born in Germany, you became a citizen of the country. At the same ceremony as you were baptized and became a member of the church as an infant, and so if you're born in Germany, you're Lutheran. You're born in Catholic. You're born in in, uh, in France, you're Catholic. And and so Anabaptists said this would be a personal choice. So that shifted baptism, and it shifted the idea of church and state being separated, which now many of it, many Protestants have have accepted. The other thing that set them apart is when they said Jesus has to be at the center of the Bible, they would start with the Sermon on the Mount for their basic ethics, and then radiate out from there into the rest of Scripture which meant that the radical reformers wouldn't support war and violence in any way and that made them uh, kind of a threat to the state because they wouldn't participate in the armies and and go to war and so Anabaptists were kind of and as pacifists they were kind of easy pickings from both Catholics and Protestants for persecution and uh, considered heretics from the beginning. Now I know that
2: you're also uh, a father you've got some uh, kids and uh that i believe uh, you are also a professor a teacher
0: yeah so I, I so i am a family man i have three daughters and uh two of them are in their 20s and our youngest there they have moved out i have one still at home who's 12 years old and um, my wife nina and i we live in hamilton and we also have uh a dog named george who is a big george george that's
1: a great name he's a giant saint
0: bernard (laughs) he's named after george blaurock the first baptized anabaptist that's how hardcore we are wow (laughs) yeah you go you go full bore (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) wow well i think it's actually pretty fitting that you kind of gave us the whole view and perspective of what anabaptist is and talking about the kind of separations or differing opinions that we have because we are talking about unity today so my first kind of question um, that I have for you is how would you describe unity, Brexy?
0: Yeah, that's beautiful, thanks. And it's, it's worth pointing out that here we are people having a, a friendly conversation together and there will be people listening to this podcast from different types of Christian faith and expression who a few hundred years ago, we would have been killing each other for some of the (laughs) topics where we would disagree.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's
0: amazing just the fact that we are not killing each other is a point of celebration in the church. So that just tells us how far the church strayed, I think, from the original vision and the original prayer of Jesus. So unity, I think, can be understood in two ways. One is the fact of unity that Jesus accomplishes and the other is the fight for unity that we are to participate in. So unity from a biblical perspective is both a fact and a fight. Uh, so I think of it as as a fact, as something that we've already experienced. Um, Ephesians 2, says that Jesus is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Thinking of two very fractured groups at the time, Jews and Gentiles, and how Jesus has made the two groups one. He has put to death their hostility. He's created one new humanity. Um, In 1 Corinthians 12, the idea of unity that is a fact is expressed through the body, that though we though who are many, have we form one body and each member belongs to all the others. So, we 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 can celebrate the fact that we are one. And then once we really uh marinate on that fact, we we meditate on it, we uh, we say, stamped at no erases, this is true, Jesus has accomplished this, then I think that should inform how we fight for unity rather than fight against one another out of the fact that of what Christ has accomplished. And there's verses like Ephesians 4:3 that says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So there's the fight of unity. Make every effort. Spudazo is the Greek word there. It means to hurry and rush toward that this is something that should be uh, job one, top priority, and we should work really hard at it and really quickly at it, not put it on the back burner but make it a top priority, an urgency. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Um, so both are true. We celebrate what is a fact Jesus has accomplished and then we commit ourselves to the fight of manifesting that. And I would say that in light of Jesus's early prayer for the disciples in John 17, where Jesus prays for his present disciples and then when he moves into praying for his future disciples in John 17, he only has one thing that he prays about, only one thing on his mind. Um, And he, you think there could be many things he would pray about for the future church, but the only thing he mentions, once he moves into praying for us, it says in John 17, 20 to 23, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning his present disciples. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, and he says that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity so that the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you love me. So the, one of the primary apologetics of Jesus that he's banking on is that the world will see a sociological miracle in these diverse and sometimes disagreeing people called Christians, who come from different backgrounds, but even have different theologies and different understandings of scripture, but Jesus has united us. And that will be the primary apologetic. That'll be the present day miracle. We don't have to just argue about 10 evidences for the resurrection, but we can say, come and join us and see this ongoing miracle right now. Such diversity, getting along, knitted together by Jesus. This is what Jesus prayed. So the world will know that you sent me and have loved them. And I read that and I think, Wow, even the Son of God knows what it's like to have his prayers go unanswered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: oh, very tongue-in-cheek way of saying that for sure. So you're you're kind of uh, pointing out that, you know, that's not the case. And um, it, what I find interesting is uh, that people that I interact with often like to describe themselves more about what they disagree about than what they agree about. And so um, I wonder if you can touch on like, where does this disunity amongst, so we're talking about the family of God here. Uh, Where do you think the disunity comes from that we're experiencing today and even like polarization that we see happening online, et cetera.
0: Yeah, great. Thank you. I think part of it comes from, and there may be many reasons, but part of it comes from a, a misunderstanding and a misapplication of the gospel. Uh, sometimes what we do is, and and as Christians, I understand this. We. We have an entire package of belief, and we, and it's all valuable to us, and maybe we've struggled and debated and questioned in order to arrive at certain conclusions about, uh, I don't know whether it's women in ministry, or it's the gifts of the Spirit or um, it is just war versus pacifism, or whatever the uh, issue may be. We have worked to come to a conclusion, and when we do, that work really leads us to value our conclusions highly, wonderful, but we hold them almost so high that we we equate them in value with the gospel itself, and they get kind of woven and interlaced with the gospel. So when we bump up against a Christian who completely disagrees with us about one of these interpretations we hold dear, it feels almost like a threat to our faith, like it's a challenge to the gospel itself, and it shouldn't be. And, uh, and we realize that in the Bible, there are occasions in the New Testament where we are told that it, it, it's appropriate to divide from other Christians over certain issues. And I think because we're, we're unclear maybe on the core nugget of the gospel that unites us together, uh, we overvalue some of our theologies our distinctives, our denominational distinctives, and hold them in tandem with the gospel, and relates with the gospel. And because I think we misunderstand some of the passages that talk about dividing in appropriate time, uh, and we kind of apply those passages to then almost any disagreement about any topic, as though we have to divide with that person, as though they're threatening the gospel itself. I think that's a, a kind of a packaged deal of what's going on in the church in many ways, so that it feels almost righteous or godly to be the divisive voice, uh, to participate in what really is more worldly, a call-out culture rather than a call-in culture. And um, so I think part of this is becoming clear, yes, on the gospel, clear on what's not the gospel then and what are our denominational distinctives, high value and wonderful, but they're not the gospel. And then also becoming clear on the issues in Scripture that we should divide over, and if we can be clear about the issues that we should divide over, that will free us up to say. Uh, well then here are recognized issues that we shouldn't divide over. And so I don't know if you want to talk about that, but I think there are clear issues in scripture that Christians should be willing to divide over. And if we can be clear about that, then we can, when when there's a controversial topic, we can say, well, is this one of those issues? And if it isn't, then we have no biblical warrant to be divisive about it.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I really like how you were talking about earlier about you know this is what is fact and this is what we're fighting towards. And you do bring up the point that there are stuff that we like that are a legitimate fact that we need to acknowledge and so I'm kind of curious like as we fight towards unity is it something that's even possible
0: yeah you know I gotta believe it is because I believe in miracles but it <laughs> it must be uh, it must be difficult though I mean as we you know you joked earlier but it's a joke based in fact is that we're doing well just not killing each other these days and, and the it's only been a few hundred years we've learned not to kill each other so the church has spent the Church of Jesus Christ the Prince of Peace has spent more generations killing each other over theological disagreements than we have spent not killing each other so mm-hmm. this we have it in our DNA to be violent and to and sometimes if we don't keep Jesus in the center and this was one of the radical reformers critiques of the Protestant reformers was to say if you don't keep Jesus in the center of your scripture reading a skilled leader, uh, can use scripture to justify almost anything. If you mm-hmm. want to use scripture to justify war or bur- burning witches or, or the drowning or stoning of heretics or, or the, the – the, the, if you if you want to – you can use scripture to justify almost anything unless you r- relentlessly put Jesus at the center of the narrative, as he should be. And, and I think we've all come to agree on that, but at that time, it could be very deceptive because every, you know, the Protestants divided by the cat, from the Catholics. The Catholics could, had held scripture in one hand, but church tradition and the leadership of the Pope in the other hand. And the Protestants were able to say, no, the Catholic Church is importing a lot of improper teaching through, uh, through the church tradition, through the church leadership and the Pope. Uh, we want to just rally around scripture. The challenge was when they rallied around scripture only, the Protestants became just as violent as the Catholics there was no decrease in violence. They, they fought just as many wars, they burned just as many witches, they, they tortured just as many heretics to get a confession. They, so so the pro, just having the Bible at the center is not enough. We need to have Jesus at the center of the Bible, which is at the center, like in concentric circles. And, and then when we do that, I think Jesus leads us into an expression of unity that um, can really happen. And that's why I, I think that's what's been happening over the last season of church history and i think it's continuing is that christians are falling in love with jesus again and that's that's the missing link ironically that's the key
1: that's interesting actually i it kind of brings me to a question that i'm curious like do you think that there is less or more division now than ever because i think some who might be you know culture Commentary kind of people might think that there's actually more division now than ever but it's interesting hearing you say that you know you believe that there is a growing unity within the church or is it just because we're more globally centric media documented, and so we're more aware of the disunity that's going on.
0: Yeah, and maybe so, and it may be the, the both, and maybe I'm just a glass half full kind of guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which is not a bad thing. No,
0: but I, um, I I think in some sense both are true. The little guy, the average person, has had an increased voice over the last few years, for better and for worse. And in some cases it is for better, in some cases for worse, through social media um, and, and a negative message is more attractive through blogging and through other ways of getting the message out there is that the average person and the and the average narrative of suspicion and skepticism of brothers and sisters who disagree about different theological issues and the fact that we are just attracted online to the the train wreck, the car crash, the thing that is more negatively sensational means that those blog posts and those tweets and those Facebook posts get more hits. They get more engagement, and so it has meant that there's a more more of a sea of voices, uh, not always the most informed, but sometimes very passionate, that get more attention and get more heard. And I think that can give this overwhelming impression that um, we're all becoming increasingly divisive. But I. I I believe that behind that, there are some um, more Jesus-centered, uh, calm, and I think spirit-filled voices in all different camps who are working to build unity. That's
2: that's very encouraging to hear, uh, especially as you like read a paper or <laughs> it's social media or Twitter or whatever. Um, you touched on something that I'd love for you to expand on a little bit. You, you talked about how, you know, we should agree on orthodoxy or you maybe didn't use that language, but there are some things that we should agree on and and divide over, but there's also things that we can um disagree but not divide. And I wonder if you can, you know, expand on that a little bit. Like what is orthodoxy and what dips into the, like the word heretic is thrown around a little too much maybe nowadays.
0: Uh, Sure, and maybe part one of the ways we could do that is to to look at Scripture and the New Testament, say. uh, What are those occasions where the apostles counseled churches or other church leaders to take the road of division? What are the cases where, according to the New Testament, we should say, I'm sorry, but we can't consider you a brother or a sister. uh, We have to go separate ways here. Um, So this has been a passion of mine because for me, it it helps define the the boundaries of the gospel and the gospel is my passion. So um, I would, looking over the biblical data, I, I think we could distill reasons to divide into four categories, um, and those would be a different Jesus, a different gospel, or an abuse of grace, or a divisive disposition. A different Jesus, a different gospel, an abuse of grace, or a divisive disposition. So. In the New Testament, people were considered not Christians or anti-Christ even when they were preaching a completely different Jesus, a Jesus who either wasn't divine or who never became human. Maybe he was fully divine, but he was only an apparition and never became fully human. They didn't accept the fullness of what uh, of, of what Jesus is and who, who Jesus is. And so if someone preaches a different Jesus, this is why with my, say, Jehovah's Witness friends, I can say I love you guys and I love your zeal for Scripture. I have a lot to learn from you, but I can't consider you my fellow brother and sister because you believe in a different Jesus who is not fully divine. Um, and, and that's a clear division. An- another example would be a different gospel we learned from Galatians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul says, there will be people who come after me perhaps with a different gospel message. Even if an angel preaches this message, don't believe him. They're anathema. I find it interesting that there are two world religious movements that were launched since then that have an angel at the root, both Mormonism and Islam. And Paul says, even if, even if an angel from heaven comes, if it's a different message, don't believe it. And so, And and if you look at the context of the book of Galatians, that message that he is rebuking, that other message, that alternate gospel that he is rebuking in Galatians is one of increased legalism. It is a Jesus plus something else message, Jesus plus Moses. When you actually have one part of you is following the new covenant of grace in Christ, but you're also upholding the law of Moses and trying to blend the two together. For a well-balanced spiritual diet, he would say, no, you you don't try and balance Jesus with anything. That's what he's rebuking as a threat to the gospel in the book of Galatians where he says this. So a different Jesus, a different gospel. Now notice so far we've only covered two but they're pretty extreme. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: what sometimes people will say today is, well you don't believe Mm, I don't know that uh, you don't believe in the gift of tongues. Well, the gift of tongues comes from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is what Jesus promised, and because Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, you must not believe in Jesus. Therefore, it's a different Jesus than how can you be a Christian. You see, we, we have these dominoes that tip from one particular denominational distinctive, um, and then we tip those dominoes all the way back and say, well, your Jesus is now suspect, or I don't trust you on the gospel because you have a different atonement theory or because you express your understanding of the kingdom of God differently or and I and and these they were dealing with much more significant things in the first century when they would actually divide from someone and say you cannot be a Christian they were very clear and distinct uh, heresies we could call them um, and not just threats of, of denominational distinctives. Now, I mentioned four abusive as uh, a different Jesus, a different gospel, an abuse of grace, and a divisive disposition. An abuse of grace, number three, there are times to divide from people who have interpreted grace as a license to sin, and we go to them, we plead with them. Division is certainly not the first step, but it can become the last step of a, of a church discipline process where we, we divide from them at the hope of maybe this extreme action will help them repent and turn around and come back. So someone who says the gospel is my excuse to sin as I please and not follow Jesus needs to be challenged in an increasingly important, increasingly urgent manner until finally we may divide from them and say, we can't be an enabler of your sin. We're not gonna allow you to continue to just come to church and play like you're a Christian brother or sister when you are not living by it. So that's church discipline. And then lastly, a divisive disposition. I I, I love this, that the Bible says there is a certain person you may need to completely divide from, and that's someone who is repeatedly divisive. Someone who is um, in some of the vice lists of Paul, the sin lists. These are places where the apostle Paul will say, these are the things you should never find among you. And there's a few of them in the New Testament. One of the ones that's on there is slander or um, a reviler, he will say, a reviler will not enter the kingdom of God, um, which is someone who uses words to cut down and separate from others. And they just do that repeatedly, almost with a sense of holy purpose and holy zeal. And the Apostle Paul says, when someone is habitually a reviler or a slanderer who is pushing others away and using their words to cut down, that's a sin that needs to be confronted like any other sin. And if they won't repent, we need to divide from them. Titus 3, verse 10 is a great example. Titus 3, verse 10, where he writes, warn a divisive person once, warn them a second time, and then after that, have nothing to do with them. It's, it's three strikes and you're out, divisive people.
2: Wow. Well, yeah, I've, I've heard it um, described. I really like those categories. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was very helpful. I've heard it described this way when I did some uh, Bible school of three levels of belief. Uh, an opinion a persuasion and a conviction and a conviction you would divide over or die for a persuasion you would uh is something you hold very strongly but you would not die for it and an opinion is like i think this is true and there's evidence but "Mm, maybe (laughs) and uh that was really helpful for me because before that i only had conviction level belief for everything and so so I had to die for all of my beliefs, uh, you know, is there a literal thousand year reign? Is there, a, you know, like, and, and it's so difficult because to hold everything in that one camp became difficult. And I look at a verse like First Timothy four sixteen 16, it says, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them because if you do, you'll save yourself and your hearers. And I was like, oh, I have this responsibility now to get every iota of my doctrine right and to like become some arbiter of truth for everyone around me. And, and it's exhausting. And, and so I think that, that that's really helpful uh, to hear that.
1: And I think even having the vocabulary to have that as well, too, because when you're in a student ministry, a lot of them are maturing and growing in their faith. And so you kind of, when you're younger, come from this assumption where, you know, you're just drinking the milk at the time where it's either do or die in a sense. But to actually bring out that nuanced understanding of faith and understanding that, you know, there are things that are worth dividing over through those categories that you kind of mentioned, I think brings a greater perspective to those who are still figuring that out. And so I'm really thankful that you kind of put it into very easy terms to understand for the most part.
0: Well, thanks. Well, I, It's so important to uh, understand that when someone is a new Christian or a baby Christian growing, it's hard to do two things at once. One is to learn what Christianity teaches, and, and that will include the, the Christianity that they are currently being discipled in, and that will have some differences if it's Baptist or if it's Pentecostal or if it's Lutheran or Presbyterian. And so, they're, but but the new Christian doesn't distinguish, I'm learning Presbyterianism, they understand I'm learning about Jesus, and or I'm learning Pentecostalism, I'm learning about Jesus. And, and so, it, they're both learning the Christian faith, but they're also learning denominational distinctives, and it's hard for a new Christian or a young Christian to parse out the difference and say I'm going to not only learn all this content but at the same time I'm going to put the content into two different categories. What is essential and what is non-essential and so Christian leaders I think need to own that and take on the responsibility of saying that part of discipleship is is not only teaching what our church believes, and we, I, I don't believe we should be mushy on the distinctives that we hold as important, but while we teach those, to also help this new convert or this young Christian catch a vision for the global church, for the larger church, and to, and to fall in love with the diversity of the church, and say, well, here's what we believe, and we really believe we're right about this, but let me help you appreciate some of the other views out there in the church and, and just how wild and wonderful the body of Christ is and how Jesus unites us together and our differences. That's the next step and that's often missed in basic Christian discipleship.
2: So that leads perfectly into my next question. How do we disagree well then? Like it's so hard to know, like everyone teaches and preaches, well not everyone, but most people teach and preach that there's only one perspective on this particular issue. So then the disciple who is young or whatever is left feeling like either I believe this or like I've got to toss the whole thing out or uh, how do we disagree well? And like, even like, how do you disagree with yourself? Like for someone like myself, I, I grew up one way, I went through a real uh, transformation of my faith in university and now I like have like a third wave of like understanding my faith. So like, how do you, how do you disagree with each other and with yourself uh, in that process?
0: Uh, yeah, what a great question. To Getting to the practical is so important. I think a, a first step, and I'll mention this for anyone who's in a leadership position, whether it's a pastor preaching a sermon on a Sunday morning or it's, it's one of us who's personally mentoring or discipling a new believer, uh, part of, I think, of what we consider to be discipleship needs to be the priority of Global church unity and cross denominational unity. While at the same time, we cheat, we teach our own church, um, our own church perspectives and and unique identities. So. When, when, One of the ways we would do that, I think, is, and this is challenging, but as a pastor, I've taken on this challenge for myself, and sometimes I do it well, and sometimes I don't do it well, but it's something I want to continue to get better <laughs> at, and that is when I preach a sermon where I realize that I'm teaching one of the distinctives that we believe is Anabaptist. but there are churches around us. There's a church down the street that believes the opposite. We happen to be egalitarian. We believe that women should be pastors and that the church is impoverished when we don't have them represented at the leadership table. So we believe it passionately. And so it would be easy for me to become a bit hoity-toity over those who just haven't been enlightened as us, who don't see this in the Scriptures, <laughs> and, who, and you know, have that kind of, that suspicious tone of the church down the street. What? They don't let women be pastors? What kind of good old boys club are they trying to, they're protecting the patriarchy. There's, there's all kind of loaded language I could use that creates an attitude, a division. And so, for, for instance, when I did a series on why we believe women should be pastors, part of what I did was take time in the sermon, in, in one of the the sermons to help people understand uh, complementarianism and why good and godly Christian brothers and sisters who I love and who I learn from regularly bl- interpret the scriptures differently than us and why they would and what scriptures they would go to to build that case, why we can see the logic in that and why we respect them. And also, it's not just teaching the content, it's them hearing my voice, it's them hearing that I'm not threatened by them, they're not the enemy. These are my brothers and sisters, and I don't just Um, I don't just tolerate them. I welcome them and I learn from them. Being in a learning posture with people you disagree with, I think is a wonderful thing to model. So I hope that our church leaders are able to begin to model. Because when you preach a sermon or you give a Bible study or you lead a youth retreat or whatever, you're doing two things. You're, You're teaching the primary content of your sermon but you're also creating a byproduct. You have a product and a byproduct, just like a car engine has the product of kinetic energy moving forward. But the byproduct is carbon monoxide, and it's not good for you. So in a, you didn't need me to say that, but I'll just throw it in. It's not good for you, kids. Don't try it at home. But a sermon also has a byproduct, and it could be a, a negative byproduct, which is I'm teaching, I don't know, say I'm a, Baptist minister and I'm teaching Penal Substitutionary Atonement, and I'm teaching how Jesus uh, bore the wrath of God for our sin and for our salvation. And as I teach that, I'm also breathing a kind of disdain for anyone, it's it's almost subconscious, but it's there in tone, a disdain for anyone who doesn't agree with us, then I have a byproduct that's like carbon monoxide, it, po- it, it poisons the unity of the body of Christ while I'm teaching my distinctive. Uh, what I've always, what I'm challenging myself with now is to say, can I have the product of teaching our church's views with a byproduct of increased unity, not diminished mm. unity? So we're pacifists, we're Mennonites, we really believe this stuff. We're like radical pacifists. We, we don't believe Christians should go to war. We don't believe they should join, join the army. We don't believe violence in any, in any situation. And as I teach this, I teach that with a passion, but I also want to make sure that I am planting seeds of respect and honor for our just war Christians who completely just dis- disagree with us. I, I, and so that while I'm, I'm, I'm teaching our product, our primary mission, the byproduct is increased unity for the body of Christ.
1: Wow, I feel challenged, convicted, yeah, humbled. Yeah, that,
0: was, that was nice.
1: That was fantastic. Thank I'm you, even Bruxy. like reflecting on that for my own life. So, what a wonderful word there. Man, and now I hear have this question that's, you know, can be kind of depressing, but we're <laughs> kind of curious of, you know, what does the church do poorly and what do they do well when it comes to unity? More so for a reflective aspect than to call it names, but you know, we ask these kind of questions because we want to know what can we learn? What w- can we do better? And also to celebrate in the ways that, you know, the church is doing something well in this regard.
0: Uh, that's great, yeah. Um, uh, let me answer with a story. It was a few years ago. I I saw there was um, a series of people over a few weeks who were coming to the church and I would always meet newcomers afterwards. They're coming to the meeting house. and. I'll sum up what became kind of a theme song of feedback I would get. When I would meet these new people, they would say something like, Hey, Bruxy, I really enjoyed the service today. I was pleasantly surprised. That was a theme that came up a few times. (laughs) And I didn't know how to interpret that. What does that mean? Is that good or is that bad? And why is it a surprise? And I'd say, Can you tell me more? And they'd say, Well, you really taught scripture today, and I learned a lot. Okay, again, is, uh, should I be encouraged or discouraged? Why is that a surprise? You came to a Christian church and I taught scripture and we learned about Jesus. And they say, oh, well, I often go to this other church who they have said that um, the Bible's so clear, for instance, that women cannot be pastors. If you ever find a church that has women pastors, you can know right away that they don't take the Bible seriously. And that was a litmus test. They said, if you're ever looking for a Bible-believing church, first make sure that they don't have women pastors. And they had another list of things. Make sure that they don't, and you can go through the checklist, and you know that they don't take the Bible seriously. So these people had, uh, were visiting, they were, they'd moved in the neighborhood, they had visited that church, they, then they tried ours and they thought, I'm so surprised that you have women pastors, but you actually take the Bible seriously. And I realized, wow, that hurts to be on the receiving end of that, that because I disagree about something biblically, It must mean that I don't care about Scripture. The idea that someone could study Scripture, love Scripture, and come to a different conclusion was never presented to that congregation, you know? and And I think because I was on the receiving end of that, and I have been since on other issues, what it did for me is say, I never want to be the perpetrator of that division. I don't want to be in the same boat. So, I'm not going to fight fire with fire. I want to make sure that if people ever leave the meeting house, go visit another church, that they've already been prepared that people who radically disagree with us are still our brothers and sisters who we love dearly and we can learn from them. Paul says in a couple places, consider others better than yourselves. That's true humility. Consider others better than yourselves. Well, that's interesting. To me, that speaks of a learning posture uh, so that I'm not just going to listen to you so I can absorb your argument so I can use it against you and win the next Twitter debate and convert you to my position. I'm actually going to consider others better than myself so that I can not only listen and manipulate what you say, but I want to listen and learn from you. And so I want to make sure that I'm always in a learning posture and I model that for our people. And I think that's something the church can do better uh, is to listen and learn from people. We disagree with and intentionally look for those kind of Christians in our lives and build relationships with them.
1: Wow, yeah. That's a great point. And so, I guess the tail end of that question was also, what can we celebrate in that the church is doing well? As you've, you know, been pastoring this church for a while and interacting in different conferences, different speaking spheres, what have you recognized as something that we can celebrate when it comes to unity in the church body?
2: Yeah, you said we're not
0: killing each other. So, there's so not that's that that a <laughs> good one. <laughs> yeah. I th- I think what I see more of is um is a a weariness over some of the petty divisiveness that some of those voices that through social media, blogging and other things have kind of risen to the surface and are continually pulling the church apart. I think I'm seeing a, a new generation rise up and they're seeing the weird, it's, it's, it's uh, pulling the church down. They see that um, it's creating division in a way that's unbiblical and, uh, and they're willing to kind of step up and fight even for those who they may disagree with, but who they consider uh, brothers and sisters. So I've been on the receiving end of that as as far as people who would call me a heretic because we disagree over things that I think are completely debatable matters within the church. Um, They're not gospel essentials, but uh, that kind of, a a bounded set way of thinking where it's all or nothing. I've been on the receiving end of that, but I've also had brothers and sisters who completely disagree with me, like friends in the Gospel Coalition, who were very different. The the Calvinist Conservative Gospel Coalition and Anabaptists, uh, Arminians, were different on many points, but, but I've had friends in the Gospel Coalition step in and say, We want to investigate you and be able to vouch for you and fight. What they're doing is they're fighting for unity. It's not really because they're fighting for Bruxy. These people weren't my friends before this process. They just were able to witness the church is being damaged here. It's it's not so much that Bruxy needs rescuing. It's the church is being damaged. This isn't right. Exactly. And so we're going to step in and really speak up and more uh, more Christians who will do that step in speak up don't it's the worldly way to have a call-out culture it's the biblical way to have a call-in culture with brothers and sisters who are united in Christ that kind of fight and hooks but a step in and actually fight for unity is a, is a real precious and beautiful thing I see more of that happening
2: hmm that's really beautiful
0: mm-hmm. there's a there's a word I'd love to introduce to people listening to your podcast it's a a Greek word that's used in the book of Acts, sometimes in the book of Romans, sometimes translated with one accord in old-fashioned translations. I mean, it talks about the church, we're all with one accord. Um, and in modern translations, it, it often just gets translated together, and they were all together in the same place. But the the word behind this English word together, it has a lot of power to it. The Greek word is homo homothumadon, homo And it, it's fascinating because Homo is a compound word bringing two words together. The homo means uh, singular or the same, so we're going to have a, a oneness to us. Thumadon comes from the word thumos, which means an anger or a rage. It's actually, it's beyond the normal word for anger, which is orge in Greek, uh, sometimes translated wrath. This is more extreme. It's a fury. It means like actually to snort with like a <laughs> with this like passionate, <laughs> I'm going to eat you for supper kind of rage. And it. Brandon, takes,
1: I wish our listeners could have seen the face there. That would have been great.
0: <laughs> it, so is this fascinating? They start to describe the early church as being together, meaning that they had this passionate rage for oneness, for unity. Hmm. And it puts those two words together and creates this new concept of people who are willing to die, to lay their lives down, to go to bat, to fight, even to risk their reputation by hanging out with the wrong crowd so that they can build better church unity or oneness. And that that idea of homothumadon is something that's just captured my soul. So rather than fight to separate, how can we fight for one another? And if we're gonna conquer anything, it's not, it, it, we wanna conquer the space that divides us and take over that territory so that we come closer together.
2: That that really sparks a question for me. I've had two things. Well, I've had a scripture running through my brain, Psalm 133, that talks about, behold how good and how pleasant it is for us to dwell together in unity and for the Lord commands his blessing there. And that's two verses without a bunch of context in the middle for those who are uh, checking me up on that Psalm 133. But I wonder if you have advice on your process for homothumidon, like were there books or like how have you grown in empathy? I think part of it is getting a little bit older I and having a family and watching, like you just can't help but have that kind of rub off on you a little bit as you see different stories unfolding around you. But may- maybe for our listeners, is there is there places that you would commend them to go to build their empathy muscles or to
0: build their love for uh, others muscles? Yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, one of, one of the things that has helped me has been a, by the way, there are precious few books Uh, I wish there were more. I wish there were more podcasts like yours who are leading the way and modeling this and discipling us and how to do this well. And um, and I wish I had a long list that I could recommend to you, but uh, I don't. David Fitch is someone who has written a book called The Church of Us Versus Them. I think that's helpful, The Church of Us Versus Them. But uh, one of the things that's been helpful to me has been a mental exercise. And just to ask the question, do I think... This sounds really basic, but hear me out here. Do I think that John Calvin and Martin Luther were Christians? I ask that question. And I say yes, of course I do. I think they were Christians. I say good, yeah, I do. That's right. And then I look at some of their teachings, and I realize that they had some beliefs that if we were to meet someone today who had those beliefs, we would be. We would say you're either not a Christian or you're a bad Christian. For instance, both Luther and Calvin thought it was okay to kill other people who disagreed with them theologically. They thought that was okay. Now, if they were here today and said, listen, those Baptists are so wrong, why don't you come with me, and we'll slaughter them all. <laughs> and you'd say, what? That would not go well. <laughs> no, you say, how can you be a Christian and even entertain that thought? That's, even if you're not the one doing the killing, that, that you're praying that it happens, and you're overseeing it, and you are you believe this is good and godly, how can you even be a Christian? And And so that helps me as a mental exercise get to the point of saying, Wow, there can be beautiful, wonderful Christians that God is using in powerful ways and still continues to use today through their writings and through their movement who can have significant blind spots and be really wrong about something that we today would say is scripturally really clear. It's really clear and they were still really wrong. And when I can get to that point, that helps me when I bump up against another Christian who I think has a view that is is—it's just really wrong. And I think this is really clear in scripture, how can you not? And they say, well, I see scripture differently. I think, man, you are so wrong. But I I now have practiced what it's like to say, I think you're wrong, but I still think you're my brother, you're my sister, and I have something I could learn from you. If we can do that with Christians who would kill other Christians because of theological differences, we can do that with all kinds of disagreements within the church today. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know how to respond we're to that. We're pretty
1: special. I feel like this happens a lot though. We hear wonderful words from our guests and we're like, where do we go from here? Yeah. It just makes you reflect a lot on your own life. we we'll just have we're an ultra blessed.
2: call right now. And we're- <laughs> yeah, we're blessed to listen in on the conversations that we get to. And uh, that's what this podcast is about, is trying to demonstrate and have healthy, empathic. I'm having a trouble with that sometimes, but conversations around these tough topics uh, my wife tells me I'm growing, so I'm. I'll, I'll stick to that.
1: But still fighting for unity within it, which yeah. is why it's very fitting to even have, I think, Brexy on here and talking about unity, even as a podcast topic, is so good for even the kind of you know values that we have as a podcast as well, too. So, thank you so much for your time, Brexy. On our podcast, we do like to give the guests the final word, or a final piece of advice, or just kind of a question for you know, our listeners to reflect on, even on themselves. So, the time is yours.
0: Oh, that's so nice. Thanks. Well, and as a final thought, I'll challenge people to think of a time when they believe something different than what they currently believe now, when they may have still been a Christian, but they've changed their mind on some theological issues, or they've learned something new. And think back to that older version of yourself and ask the question, was I intentionally trying to somehow undermine the church, or did I just have a different belief? So I know that as me, Bruxy, I believe things now that are the opposite of what I believed decades ago when I was a younger Christian. I held certain views very passionately and very strongly, and I believe with more scripture study, I have I have, I've experienced a conversion of my own opinions about these things. But I look back at the old Bruxy and I think, hey, he loved Jesus just as much as New see, on this issue, and uh, and I and I think there was no malice in me believing what I believed back then. I was quite convinced, and so that helps me have more empathy and compassion for Christians that I may come in contact with now, who believe more in keeping with what I used to believe decades ago, and and are very passionate about it. And I I rather than just be insulted that they disagree with me, my, my first mental step is to say, I so love their passion and that they care so much to lean into this. And I hope I can learn from that passion. I hope I'm not, I don't use it uh, in a divisive way. I hope I've matured, but I I want to also learn and appreciate that they're my brothers and sisters, even if they can't return the favor. Um, I'll, I'll close with this story. I was on a, um, I was on a radio show with a pastor who, um, is uh, same-sex marriage affirming, and I was invited on as the conservative, and I know for many Christians, they're always shocked when Bruxy Cavey's invited to represent conservative, (laughs) Um, but I was invited as the conservative, and and I knew that the host of the radio show was looking for sparks. They wanted the issue to really, um, you know, create some heat, and that creates listenership. I get it. It's the media, and... And so I just sat there in the studio, and before we went to air, I said to this uh, pastor, I said, listen, I uh, we... St- We disagree completely on this topic, I get it, but I am in no position to judge your soul, and so my approach, my starting point, is to believe that you are my brother, that Jesus unites us, even if I think you're completely wrong. Like I said, I think John Calvin was completely wrong about a very significant issue. I can think someone is very wrong about this issue, but you're my brother, and I'm sure I have lots to learn from you, and I hope that today, on this radio show, we can model the unity of the body of Christ. And he looked at me and said, Bruxy, I cannot return the favor. Wow. Yeah, he said, "If you do not agree with us, then you are the enemy. You are holding back a social justice issue, and conservative Christians are the enemy." And then they said, "All right, we're going to air." And then I was kind of stunned, and, and that's how it began. And I, uh, and, and that grieved me. And what it taught me is that conservatives don't hold the corner market on being divisive and judgmental, and sometimes they're more progressive friends. Can be just as dismissive to conservative Christians, and and so I hope that whatever uh, point of view someone's coming from as they listen to this, they'll not just not be divisive, but they will actively fight for that that homothumadon, that oneness, that unity of the church, and. Um, And I'm praying that my daughters, as they grow up, will grow up into a a new church that is freshly discovering Jesus and the unity that he brings.
2: Wow, thank you so much for your, I'll say it, wise words uh, to us today and uh, for taking the time to be with us, Bruxy. I really appreciate it. And uh, I've really appreciated watching your journey Thank you for making it so public <laughs> over the last couple decades to uh, to listen in on what's happening and and uh, with the meeting house and also with your personal journey with faith. Well, thanks you guys. It
0: seems like you got a good thing
2: going on here. I hope you keep it up. And um, thanks for doing what you do. Huh. Thank you. We'll take that to the bank. <laughs> praise, praise from Brexie. Thank you so much. Bless you. And we'll see our listeners next time on Undiscussed you <laughs>